Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Our star-spangled Union Jack flutters so proud over the dancing heads of the merry patriotic crowd. Yeah, tip your hat to the Yankee conquerors. We got no reds under the bed with guns under our pillows. We're the 51st state of America. Yeah, we're the 51st state of America. Well, so said the British rock band New Model Army back in 1986, capturing the sense very... um, Uh, memorable to those of us who lived through the 80s, that America was taking over the world and we're all turning into little Americans. Well, welcome to The Rest is History with me, Dominic Sambrook, and my own little American, Tom Holland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeehaw! (laughs) Hey, Dominic. Hello. So, Tom, are you you an Americanophile or Americanophobe, would you say? Like everybody, I'm both. (laughs) I I love America. I... uh, of course, everyone, everyone loves America, American culture, but there are times where I feel slightly resentful about how much I love it. I guess that's yeah. the right frame. frame that's very, I was about to say that's a very British thing, but of course the French, I mean, the French are both, I always think the French are both the biggest Americanophiles and the biggest Americanophobes. So they're the people who go on about Anglo-Saxon culture and all this, but they're also the world's biggest McDonald's consumers. Yeah, I guess for the French, I mean, in the word Anglo-Saxon, they for the, for the French, they have they bundle Britain in with America. They do, don't they? To, yeah, a, de- they to do. a degree, so it's you know Anglo-Saxons. Whereas for us, there's the kind of nagging sense that you know we began it and now they've taken yeah. over. It's a bit like us with you know with sport. You know, we invent the sports and then everyone comes and beats us. And slight feeling like that, I think, with with America, it's the slightly staid older brother with the much cooler younger brother, isn't it? I always think. Um, of course, not something you'll be familiar with. Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yeah, that is very much where I am. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I am too. So, um, uh, okay, so Americanization. Do you know? uh, Do you know where the word Americanization comes from? I hope you don't, because I want to tell you. Uh, I don't, Dominic, and I'm not interested. So let's move right on. Don't go on. (laughs) (laughs) Tell you've obviously been saving it up. Bless you. I have. I have. have. (laughs) So there's a book published in 1902 called The Americanization of the World by the British newspaper editor W.T. Stead. And um, he talked then, he basically said the United States is going to replace the British Empire and, you know, we're all going to end up speaking American and all that kind of thing. And, of course, he was right, wasn't he? I mean, we we have become Americanized. I mean, you and I are both of that generation that I think our parents would have looked at us and said, oh, you're using a lot of American slang. You know, you wear American clothes, you watch American TV, too much American TV, or that kind of thing. And we have, to some extent, grown up as little Americans, or at least people in the shadow of America, haven't we? Yeah, because we grew up in the 80s when we were the kind of unsinkable aircraft carrier for, for America. Yeah, and so we Estrit were Estrit One. So um, I think that um, after, you know, after, the, after the Second World War, through the Cold War, American power, military power, economic power, the cultural power was a kind of crucial... In, I mean, it was it was both a, a part of of, um, uh, of Americanization, but it was also served to disguise the hardness of American power. Yeah. If you were if you were kind of into jeans and coke and American music, then you might be slightly less worried about the large number of American um, planes, you know, sovereign territory on your own country, or 
um, the economic power that uh, the dollar exercises, all that kind of thing. And I think that that's, I mean, that's, that, that, that's been a kind of a, a, a feature of the ambivalences towards America, certainly since the, since the Second World War. But actually, I, I, I'm just interested though. The, so, so the word Americanization dates back to the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, it, it, it's a word that is being applied to something that existed before that, presumably in the 19th yes. century. Yeah. So the, the take up. So actually, I think most of the traffic was one way, pretty much one way for most of the 19th century. So you know, Dickens goes to America, um, British Music Hall um, goes to America. It does come back a bit, but but we are the we are the big the big daddy. And they are the kind of recipients of our culture. Um, but then I think there's a sense probably about round about, you know, 1900 or so that, um, it's starting to come back the other way that we are reading American books. Uh, we are becoming familiar with cowboys and so on. Yeah. So Buffalo Bill, Buffalo yeah, Bill is this Wild West show coming, coming round and huge success. And also American heiresses coming over. Isn't yeah, that, that's, that's right. There's and I know that because that's in Downton Abbey. So it must be true. And so here's a funny thing for you. In 1914, T.S. Eliot, who's from Missouri, um, is in Oxford, and he spoke in a debate at the Oxford Union, 1914, so before the First World War, about the Americanization of Oxford. And, and what was he saying? He said he was speaking for it. You know, the, the motion was, you know, this house deplores the Americanization of Oxford. T.S. Eliot was speaking for it, and he said, we see ourselves as cultural missionaries taking the gospel of America out to the world. I mean, he said it in a teasing way. It's hard to imagine T.S. Eliot being that, being that funny, actually. But um, yeah, he <laughs> Hey, <of> guys! <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <Yeah. laughs> That's a brilliant T.S. Yeah. Eliot impersonation, John. I, I, I mean, worth the, 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 um, the entrance price to the podcast alone, just to hear you do your... <laughs> my, t- my famous T.S. Eliot. <laughs> April is the cruelest month! <laughs> Way to go, guys! Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, but but what was he thinking? So what was he thinking that Oxford? How was he thinking Oxford had been Americanized? Uh, clothes, music, you know, um, expressions. So it's like P.G. Woodhouse's early books have a lot of the mixture of kind of upper class slang and kind of American slang as well. That's one of P.G. Woodhouse's big things. And then I think I think if I'm going to pick one moment that I think marks Americanization, it's 1927. It's the jazz singer because that's the first time the Al Jolson film that people actually large numbers of people, millions of people are hearing American accents. And it's from that point in the 20s and 30s that you have, I mean, you have people discussing this in Parliament about the fact that English kids are using American slang, that they are, or they're modelling themselves on movie stars. And um, the first British, the first British film with sound was done by Hitchcock, I think. And the way they marketed it, they said, you can hear English as as it should be spoken. So instead of um, instead of listening to all this kind of that's American a timeless stuff, marketing phrase, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why I choose a film <laughs> based on the quality of the spoken English. Um, so I think from the twenties onwards, I mean, it's, I have no coincidence that comes in the aftermath of the First World War. And I think from the twenties onwards, you have this persistent anxiety in Brit- specifically in Britain. Um, I mean, there are different kinds of anxiety elsewhere, but I think we have a very particular anxiety that we have been. Um, infiltrated, I guess, by Americanness, and you have that now when the demand, the arguments about the culture wars and so on. That we're actually we've just imported unthinkingly these American ideas, and we're arguing about them, and they don't apply to us. I think that's true, um, but I think that that 
it's interesting that, you know, in terms of the culture wars, which I think is, is actually the way that America is being most influential on us at the moment. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that. What's interesting is that that, again, is a kind of flip from when we were growing up, when really it was the right that was very pro-American. Yeah. Uh, all the debate around, you know, again, going back to US air bases in Britain, Greenham Common campaigners, um, yeah. CND, uh, America was seen as the enemy. Um, Thatcher was disliked, not just for her own sake, but because she was seen as Reagan's mole. Yes. Um, yeah. The, 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 the kind of the explosion of finance in, uh, in, with the Big Bang and everything in London was yeah, seen American as a crisis of Americanization. Yeah. yeah. And so Canary Wharf, you know, it had the look of America, skyscrapers yeah. and things like that. So, um, the, the sense that Americanization was a kind of right wing project, I think that's now flipped because I think that, um, the, 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 de- the debates, the passions in, in, in Britain at the moment are massively coming from America. I yeah, think so, so now I think it's the left that's been Americanized. So we were talking about Anglo-Saxons. The the sense that that is a problematic phrase. Yeah, um, so even you're the word no longer problematic. now absolutely, but you're no longer supposed to use the word Anglo-Saxon to describe the period between the end of the Roman oh, Empire right. yes. in Britain and the um, uh, you know the Norman Conquest because Anglo-Saxon is seen as being an inherently racist white su- supremacist phrase. But that's only the case in America. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. You've been involved in that argument, haven't you? On well, Twitter it's, it's infuriating. It's infuriating because, in, you know, they want, they say we should use, you know, early, early medieval England, um, or early English, but it's the English Defence League. It's not the Anglo-Saxon Defence League. Anglo-Saxon doesn't have that connotations here in Britain. It's a no. purely American connotation, but because it's American academics leading it, British academics, or, you know, some of them kind of obediently say, oh, well, we must, we must abolish this phrase. And ignoring the fact that, of course, as we've already discussed, Anglo-Saxon has a quite different connotation for the French or the Germans, where it, yeah. So I, I think that that has, that, that's been the kind of the intriguing change is that now it's the left that's been Americanized. I can actually agree with you. a kind of strain of suspicion in the, on the, on, on the right about America. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And I think that's because, it's partly been driven by the internet, hasn't it? So that um, if you're a sort of engaged, liberal, sort of academic-y, intellectually kind of person, then you're part of a sort of, you see yourself in, as part of a conversation that's dominated by Americans simply because there are far more of them speaking your language than there are of you. And I think you see this in terms of, so, I mean, I remember sort of 25 years ago teaching um, undergraduate courses about white supremacy in America and white supremacy being a very specific thing Um to do with slavery and the sort of incomplete legacy of reconstruction at the end of the civil war and the creation of these kind of white supremacist regimes in the American South. And it was a very distinct, specific American thing. And now of course, white supremacy is a, is a sort of concept that is banded around in a very vague, undefined way. And people talk about white supremacy in Britain and and, and European countries and so on. And it's not the same thing at all. What they've basically done is just taken an American term, and that's true of yeah. almost all these culture war battles. The statue toppling started in America. Well, I mean, some of it started in South Africa, but a lot of the, the, the most notable examples are Confederate statues in America. And people copy, effectively been copying what they see in the States and translating it to the sort of British cultural landscape. And I think that is a big change because that's not something that left liberal people would have done when we were growing up in the 70s and 80s, is it? I mean, they would have recoiled okay. from the idea of America. So, so, so the question is, um, is this, it, does it happen simply because, um, we speak the same language? And so we 
are prone to think that that uh, phrases that are banded about in America have a, a relevance here. Or does it go further than that? Is there a desire to kind of be American? Um, so in a sense, the, the desire to, to, to feel that you're fighting white supremacy or whatever here in the way that radicals are in, in, in America, that presumably is kind of drawing, it, it's part of a continuum that reaches back through people in the 60s being inspired by hippies or, or whatever, um, the example of, of, of music yeah. there, into the 50s through, through rock and roll. Um, I guess ultimately, you know, going, again, going back to the, the 30s and the 20s through, through Hollywood, that America just kind of provides the template for, for kind of, you know, what it is to be cool, to be cutting edge, to be on the zeitgeist. Now, there is a bit of that. Actually, a great example, you mentioned the 60s, is the um, British protests against the Vietnam War. I mean, we weren't in the Vietnam War. But, they think <laughs> yes. but people yes. have protests about it anyway. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's pure Americanization. I mean, that's just that, pure, that really is just copycat kind of. We've seen it, so let's do it in Grosvenor Square in 1968. Yeah, I think there's also a deeply buried sense, I think, that America is the kind of fulfillment of Britain. And that obviously goes back to the 18th century when in the US War of Independence, that America was the kind of summation of the British kind of, you know, the liberal experience, I suppose, the good old cause of the English Civil War, that America was the realisation of that and that we were moving you know, we're sort of moving towards becoming America. But that's also there in France, isn't it? So you have, I'm kind of thinking, you know, one of the very first, not exactly Americanization, but looking to America as, as an example. There's a famous meeting in, I think, 1778, something like that, where Benjamin Franklin is the ambassador to Paris um, of the, of the, you know, the, the newly founded American Republic and meets Voltaire and introduces his grandson to Voltaire and Voltaire kind of, blesses him in English and basically says, yeah, America, you're great. Yeehaw. Uh, equivalent. <laughs> that, that is kind of, we've had TSA and Voltaire impersonations. impersonations. <laughs> Yeehaw. Um, and Voltaire with an American accent, this is spiraling off in directions that I, I anticipated. But there's a yeah. sense, that, I mean, kind of just at the right at the beginning that Voltaire is kind of handing over the torch of the yeah. Enlightenment to, to, to Franklin, who is, you know, the embodiment of, of, of a republic before France has become a republic or anything like that. And, and the sense that, you know, it's a new world and new worlds are good. Yes, it's, a, it's America being the future. And I think that's actually what's really interesting about the last few years is that that's the it's the first point that I can really think of when America has not felt like the future. Yeah. When um, so so all through the twentieth century, when people were arguing about America, or when people said Reagan is a you know Nixon is a Nazi, Reagan is a fascist, all this sort of stuff, they still never doubted that America was ahead of Europe to some extent. I mean, America was literally ahead. They got their films earlier. They, you know, pioneered Coke and McDonald's and Levi's and rock and roll and all this sort of stuff. But I detect in the last sort of 10 years or so, especially with the, the Trump sort of imbroglio, a sense that America is no longer seen as humanity's future or the West's future, that America, you know, there's this real sense of having taken a wrong turn or taken a and, and you can sense the yearning that people have actually in the west for america to represent an ideal by the fact that so many people you know who i'm sure we both know 
when Biden was elected and when he was inaugurated and all all that sort of stuff, they sort of said, "Oh, isn't it great? Isn't it?" Now they they don't say that when there's the changing of the guard in Belgium. You know, America but, has this special place. But isn't there also a kind of paradox that um, that that although America is no longer a kind of moral exemplar, it it is a kind of an ex- it's become an exemplar of um, of evil. Um, so if you were the victim of, uh, you know, an oppressive state apparatus, do it, be one in America, because then your name will be, will appear on placards, on posters. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in Europe, people will campaign and march and, uh, um, give speeches about George Floyd. But yeah. you look at what's happening in China, where, and you, you know, entire say that. People, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But, yeah absolutely but, right. but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a kind of, um, not not dealing with the kind of the moral issues of 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 whether an american life matters more than a you know a, someone in in a, a Uyghur life but it's it's although china is now you know we've talked about this that china is kind of coming up it feels like it's you know it's now a bipolar world in a sense it isn't as long as the death of an american matters more in the streets of of europe than you know the incarceration of an entire people yeah. Because I think that, that it's, it's an expression of the hold that America has. And, you know, again, going back to kind of the idea of white supremacy and all that kind of stuff, it, in a sense, saying that this is uniquely evil, it's uniquely terrible, is a, is a manifestation of Americanization. It's, it's yeah. kind of saying America matters more. It matters more what happens in America than what happens to in, in China or whatever. I'd agree with that. And I think there's also a sense both for Americans and for people writing or talking about America, that America is always the centre. The story is always about America. So, you know, there's a coup somewhere in Latin America or, or there's, um, you know, there's a, a revolution somewhere in, in East Asia. And, it, you know, you, know, you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be people marching against the US government's role in it and writing books to say it was all plotted by the CIA and all that thing. America is always the centre and at the centre of the story and America is always held to different expected. Okay, it's held to different standards. Don't you think it's held so, to? Yeah, I do. But but again, just kind of moving on from that and 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 slightly twist the argument. So we've been talking about the relationship of Britain, particularly, and and the Anglophone world, and perhaps those parts of Europe that speak English very fluently, so the Netherlands and Scandinavia, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, in France, there's a, the whole kind of you know the, the wokeism. Is regard, there's, Golly, there's, you're um, really spoiling continental voices. That's kind of you know there's a, there's a major national debate going on about whether yeah. um, a, a American what they see as kind of alien ideological approaches are, are suitable to France. But I would say further going beyond the bounds of Europe and what we might traditionally describe as the West, I think that actually America is no longer the centre. So I think in the Middle East where you know it's been blundering in and starting wars all over the place. Actually, America is now just one actor among many in, 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 you know, in lots of ways, China and Russia are just as significant players. And I think that in, in, um, you know, in Asia, where there's the feeling that, you know, America is kind of on, on retreat, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I do think that they're, you know, all the stuff, you know, the past year, it's, it's, it's irrelevant to them. But, the, but not culturally though, Tom, right? So some, to, to start getting into some questions, um, Jacob Hawkins says, was Americanization possible because English was already the lingua franca? Which is actually a really good question. And then he says, and will a language barrier prevent Sinoization or whatever the Chinese equivalent of Americanization is? So let's to pick up your point. Um, 
clearly Chinese money and Chinese kind of political clout matters in Africa and in Eurasia in a way that it never did before and that is arguably eclipsing America. There's no doubt about that. But nobody looks to Chinese moral examples or to Chinese cultural examples, do they? I mean, nobody swoons before Chinese pop stars or Chinese films or or indeed, you know, even Chinese kind of cultural habits and stuff. It's still America, partly because of English, because the British Empire had kind of done a lot of the heavy lifting for it and turning English into the language of business and commerce and stuff. Don't you think that America still plays that part because of the language in a way that China perhaps never will? Yeah, maybe. Um, I, I mean, I think that uh, if you speak a language, of course, you, you then see the world through a particular prism. And, you know, the very words that you use kind of determine how you understand the world. Um, and I, I, I agree that, it, of course, if you speak a language, then you're going to be more open to the that country's films and music and so on. But having said that, I... I think that um, my sense is that ideologically and culturally, America matters less in in Asia now than it did 10, certainly 20 years ago. And I I wonder whether that weathering process is going to accelerate over the next decades. I I would guess that it it probably would. And I would imagine that um, certainly in uh, in areas that, um, you know, it, it's important to to speak to the Chinese. Inevitably, people are going to start learning Chinese because yeah. um, language language is an index of, of cultural and economic and, and often military power. That's that's why they spread. That's why the, the British Empire managed to, to spread English around the world, and it's why America spread English around the world. And we may, I suppose, you're right that we are only at the beginning of that process, aren't we? So, although nobody speaks Chinese now, other than Chinese people, and nobody watches Chinese TV or anything like that, maybe in fifty years' time might be a different story. Well, I've certainly started watching more Chinese films over the past two Have decades. You? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen a Chinese film. I know that's very shaming. <laughs> I, well, I, I love all the, the brilliant Chinese films where they all jump through bamboo shoots and oh. fight each other. And, you know, it's all great <laughs> yeah. stuff. I'm aware that I'm not... Is that a Crouching Tiger, <laughs> Hidden Dragon? Is that a Chinese yes, film? Yes, and there's a wonderful... So the, I have film seen that we mentioned. Yeah, and there's a wonderful film that we mentioned with, in the podcast with Michael Wood called Hero, which is all about the um, the first yeah. emperor and the the unifying of China, which is the most arrant state propaganda imaginable. I mean, it's basically saying it's brilliant, millions of people die, but it's all for the cause of China. But I see. I assumed I assumed you were just sucking up to Michael Wood. I didn't. I didn't think you'd actually. (laughs) No, (laughs) I I really had. Um, uh, Should we have a a break at this point? I think we should. A commercial break. break. (laughs) Right, a break to hear from our sponsors while we enjoy some candy and coke. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kaye, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History with me and my partner, um, Tom Holland, my partner. I, I was sort of thinking cowboys, but um, <laughs> not in the Brokeback Mountain sense of cowboys. Um, very, very much not, listeners. Uh, um, okay, Tom, let's do some questions. Let's get into some questions. Uh, I'm going to kick off with, I'm just going to do them in, in, in order. So the first two, the producer's written, read together, which I will. Um, Anthony Sanders says, how much of Americanization has been the accident of Hollywood and Silicon Valley both being from there? And how much is it because of their sort of hegemony? So is it just coincidence? And Margaret Ide said, says uh, another Americanization question. Um, uh, to what extent is the greater Americanization in Britain compared to elsewhere in Western Europe? And is this because of the accident of language? So I guess two kind of accident yeah. questions. So Tom. Well, I think... Uh, Saying Americanization is simply an accident of Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, both of them are expressions of American power. Yeah. You need the money, you need the uh, infrastructure, you need the um, intellectual capital um, that enables you to uh, set these incredible, um, massive, century-defining industries on, yeah. on, on, on two legs. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's a virtuous circle because if you are sending out your films, if you're sending out um, uh, software and hardware or whatever for computing, then you're embedding your cultural power, aren't you? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's probably a tiny element of contingency with Hollywood in that Hollywood was very fortunate because of the First World War. So the First World War basically ripped out its competitors, so the French film industry particularly, um, you know, French film production collapsed basically in the First World War and, and afterwards in the 20s when there was an appetite for cinema in the 20s and 30s and 40s are really the heyday of cinema um, it was American films that filled the gap so you know had it not been for the First World War Hollywood would have faced more competition but I think you're probably right it's the biggest domestic market isn't it and the most dynamic market in the 20th century so of course it was going to create Hollywood and, and of course Silicon Valley was going to happen in America simply because, you know, the demand, the, the the potential consumer base is so much greater than anywhere else. And the military, because... Yeah, of course, the military... The contribution of, money of into, the military yeah. to the internet and everything, again, yes. you need, you know, so that's a, a kind of crucial aspect of yeah. it as well. Yeah, it couldn't have worked out any other way. You wouldn't have had Silicon Valley in the Netherlands. I mean, that was never going to happen. Well, I, I, so that, that brings us to the, the, the issue of language. Uh, and I'd be interested to, I mean, maybe if we've got Dutch or Scandinavian listeners who, 
you know, whose English is better than us, basically. Yeah. Um, do, you know, do you do do you feel that uh, your facility with English means that you are more exposed to American influence than? But here's a big difference, Tom. An interesting difference is that um, different school systems teach different kinds of English. So okay, you're. Um, so my wife once had a Norwegian housemate um, when they were students who speaks very upper class English, English, because in God. Norway, that's the form. But in some countries, they speak with an American accent. Which you know, countries? They, villainous countries. I villainous. Don't <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We need Maybe to the, find Dutch. Out and... Do the Dutch speak English, Americanized English. No, I'd always thought the, the Dutch spoke with a Dutch accent. Well, they they can't lose the Dutch. Yeah, they can't lose the Dutchman. Um, that's for sure. But just to turn this on the head, I mean, I suppose the one positive for us is that um, it does also make it easy for us to then invade America. So in the sixties, you know, in the fifties, yeah. popular music invades Britain, um, and in the sixties, the Beatles and so on invade America. Yeah. And that's purely because of the language, right? Because they can go over to America, they're yeah. singing in, in, but they can do yeah, interviews. Yeah, yeah. They can, and and the the Englishness gives them a calling card that no American band can match. So it gives them an exoticism, and it makes them different. And you know, so all the things that 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 we think of, I mean, American bands when they come here, they have the Americanness, which is a calling card. But our band's very Britishness if they play it right. It's quirky, it's funny, and all those. If they play, those, if they sort of press those buttons, they can and enjoy so, success yeah. that a similar American band couldn't, uh, or, or, or a French band. Yeah, um, it would be impossible for a French band because they'd open their so mouths and talk, and people would start yeah. laughing at them. But even Daft I mean, Punk have to, you know, left. It's all in English. Um, yeah, which merely confirming French suspicions of of the Anglo-Saxons, rather than specifically Americans, and perhaps it's telling that the first. Big, the first European band that to really go global, I suppose, is ABBA, um, and they spoke very good English from a, from a country where people did speak excellent yeah. English. Okay, Dominic. Our next question is from uh, Jack Davenport, who in fact is our oh, producer. Yeah. So, cheers, Jack. Thanks for this. Um, how Americanized has the world really been when only American teams take part in the World Series? It's a great question. Jack, Jack. loves his sport. Very- yeah. Um, um, so that is a good question, isn't it? Because American good, sport, no, nobody's interested in American sport, are they? No, it's unless it's, you're American. It's a really strange thing, isn't it? That America has been so good at exporting everything else: its food, its taste, its cultural habits, its clothing. But sport is the one thing that is. Uh, it's basically completely failed. I mean, how many people in England, which is probably the most pro-American country, you know, of all Western European countries, how many people know can name? all the NFL teams or even know who was in the Super Bowl or, or certainly baseball. I mean, who cares about baseball? Um, and that's a really strange... I guess their domestic market is big enough that they almost don't need to worry about tailoring it for an international audience. But also, I guess, it's in, international sport was created by the British Empire, wasn't it? I mean, football was exported, cricket, obviously, rugby, and, and America maybe entered too late. Would you buy that? They came when when American power became big enough to export their sport. The British sports were already too well established. But you could say say with football, and I know we, we're going to have Jonathan Wilson on um, in a couple of weeks to to do an entire episode on the history of football. But but you could say that um, British power and influence in the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, you know, spread it around the world, and then Britain's relative decline 
meant that it wasn't it it was no longer identified as a british sport so it could become a global sport yeah whereas whereas everything american is kind of american you know in america it's american we call it american football um baseball is a kind of icon of, of america and perhaps um you know perhaps it's just too culturally tied in with america i don't know i don't know i think that's a really good point really. actually um, i mean that's one way that britain so um british popular culture started to be exported at the point at which the british empire lost its it's fading. potency so in other words you could embrace you could listen to the beatles without you know betraying yourself as irredeemably pro-british and being slagged off by your contemporaries you know national nationalistic contemporaries or something but american sport you're right you if you're you know in i don't know egypt or something and you're a great nfl fan and you're a, you're devoted to the cleveland browns i mean that that, that carries so much cultural baggage doesn't it that it would yeah, be, yeah. you know, politically, it's a sort of, it's a brave decision. And it did, you know, it did in the, after, after the war, you know, teams would turn up to Wembley and beat England. And that would be a kind of rite of passage. And then, yeah, and Hungary, then yeah. England would cease to register. You know, it would, England was just another football playing country. It had no great significance at all. Whereas America, it will always be, I, I guess. But, and, and I guess because football, is, what we call football is so popular, um, perhaps there just isn't room for. I'm going to tell you a sporting ecosystem, a, a, a sporting story, a sporting anecdote. So I was in the 1998 World Cup in France, in I think Montpellier, in a square, and they put up a big screen, and they showed all the games there, and all the fans watched, you know, mingled. It was this sort of you know, FIFA's dream of people all drinking beer and mingling happily and being friends, wearing Benetton. Yeah, well, yeah. So we'd fallen in with a group of Colombians at one point, I remember, and we were in this crowd maybe, I don't know, 2,000 people, 3,000 people or something. And the match was Iran versus the United States. This long-awaited showdown. The Iranians all gave flowers to the They did. The Iranians turned up with flowers, right? And there were two men next to us. They were basically Bill Bryson and Steven Spielberg. They were American soccer fans who traveled with their fanny packs. And they were there (laughs) all prepared. And they were like soccer devotees. And this was their... And it was awful. Because everybody in the square supported Iran very passionately. <laughs> and as the Iranian goals went in, these two Americans looked more and more disconsolate. And it wasn't the fact their team were losing. It was just they realized how much the rest of the world desperately wanted Iran to win. You but know, that's, 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 we have the same. Does it? I mean, everybody wants England to lose. Do they? I never they, believe well, that. Rugby, I don't believe rugby, that. Rugby they do, I think. Do they? Yeah, I suppose rugby, they do. Yeah. They always want England do to they? lose. Do they? I mean, are England the big no, baddies I, in cricket? No, not anymore, sadly, but that's because we're not good enough. And I don't even think that's true of football. I think everyone in Scotland wants England to lose. Um, But I don't think people in Europe say, oh, anyone but England. I mean, I think they just think we're we're slightly a comic turn that, you know, crash out in the quarterfinals every year. Yeah, so we've lost our notoriety. I mean, imagine if America won the World Cup. Imagine if that happened. I mean, it would be be, awful, wouldn't it? It would be the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. um, Oh, here's a question from James. It's an excellent one. Hi, guys. Love the pod. So we like that. To what extent is Americanization and American exceptionalism influenced by the widespread belief within the US that it's a nation blessed by God? It's a gift to you, this God, question, Dominic. Uh, uh, John, what, what's your uh, view on that? I think I can answer this with no need for any um, input from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. No, Go I think it. this absolutely... Um, so American exceptionalism is clearly a very religiously infused idea. The idea of the shining city on the hill... And that's an idea that they've got from 17th century um, English Puritanism, obviously. But I think 
Americans, irrespective of their religious identity, share that sense, don't they? They share the sense that America is a nation chosen by God, even if they don't believe in God. They think they're a chosen people um, and that their nation is special. It represents an ideal rather than just a sort of a story of shared belonging. Um, and that it represents, I mean, even people who are the most sort of radical critics of the American government within America will often then go on to say, because our country should mean something more than that, because yeah. we fail to live up to our ideals. This isn't the real America. Right. This isn't I mean, America. This is what everybody said after that Trump riot, wasn't it? This is not America. This is not who we are. And everybody yeah. else outside America was saying, no, no, this is who you are. <laughs> We've seen the films. We've done the game, the video games. We know, we know this. Um, but Absolutely. And I think it is completely religious this, in inspiration, this idea, don't you? Yeah, and I, but I think that from our point of view, uh, I think that it's part of a common stock of kind of Anglo-American Protestantism. Uh, yeah. And again, I think that that means that it's not just um, one of the reasons that we're, we're, we're so kind of susceptible to it. I mean, open to it, um, ready to accept the, the justice of it is because we share a common kind of um, seedbed of theological assumptions. So the the idea that um, uh, people should be awakened, that people are steeped in sin that the spirit should descend and that people should be awakened. And you have this thing, the great awakening that begins in Britain and spreads to uh, America in the 18th century. And then you have a, a succession of them because of course you have an awakening. People are born again. They have their eyes opened. The spirit descends on them and then they, they return back into sin. And, you know, it's, it's a kind of truism to talk about the great awakening, but I think that, that it's, it's manifestly in that tradition. And I think that that's why it's, it's had the impact that it's had here is because we also are heirs to that kind of essentially Protestant yeah. sense that we're lost in sin and we need to be awakened to our, our moral responsibilities and the kind of, and also the biblical narrative of Exodus of a, a people in slavery who are chosen by God to be redeemed from the evil oppressor, the imperialist oppressor um, is, is, you know, this is in its overtly biblical form is something that Martin Luther King absolutely yeah. enshrined as the kind of the heartbeat of the civil rights movement. Now with Black Lives Matter, that's not overtly Christian. Indeed, often it's, it's in overt terms, anti-Christian, but it's still manifestly drawing on those traditions. And I think that again, that's why it's kind of, you know, transplanted so easily here. So the interesting thing is that we've lost, what we have lost in Britain is the sense that did exist in the 18th century, that Britain was that country, that Britain was chosen by God, and that Britain was yeah, the city but, on the hill. We but, don't know one believes that now. No, but I think that, that what you see in Britain, what you also see in America, which is a sense that we are kind of unique in our evil. Um, oh that, yeah, we definitely see the, that. The, the, yeah. the we're dignified by 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 our wickedness. By yeah. you know, we we are the the enslaver. We are the, we are Babylon. We are you know the evil empire, and therefore we need to repent of that. Um, and and only by repenting can we be brought into the light. Um, and and I think that you know the, the 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 sense that both America and Britain, that both Americans have and the British have, that that somehow there's a kind of deep stain of evil there that needs yeah. to be purged and repented for. It's a it's a kind of arrogance almost. I it mean, it's it a kind of solipsism. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of you know it's it's Couldn't a narcissism. It's, it's placing us at the centre of history, at the fulcrum yeah. of history, even if you know. 100 years ago, it was because the British Empire was great. Now it's because the British Empire was uniquely evil. Um, 
it, it, it's a kind of narcissism. I agree with and you. I think I mean, that that's something that Britain and America definitely share. There's no conflict in the world that there won't be somebody who says it was either the British Empire's fault for misdrawing maps or it's the CIA's fault plotting in the name of international Americanized capitalism. And it's always putting themselves at the center of the story and their own moral failings. Yeah. I don't think you get the same thing in France, for instance. No, which the would French be the obvious parallel to us. Yeah, no, the mean? French don't think that. And of um, course, as we discussed in a previous episode, people like the Dutch are, you know, delighted by their own empire. And um, well, not no, no. to be fair to the Dutch, not not all because the Dutch also were part of this Anglo-American Atlantic world of Protestantism. So I think that the, the Dutch also are, to that extent, perhaps. Am I not right in thinking that the, as well? The big YouGov survey shows the Dutch are prouder of their own imperial past than anyone else. I think they said that forty percent of the Dutch were, but also that means sixty percent aren't. And there yeah. are huge kind, of, you know, there's huge debates in uh, in in the Netherlands about was it Black Pete who is. Uh, that's right. um, a, a, a festive figure who turns up wearing blackface, and I think that's a kind of you know very much a, yeah. the kind of debate that that is informed by American cultural concerns. Um, so anyway, yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. Do we have another question? Uh, oh, here's a great one. On, here's a great on, one. This on. is very much for you. Um, oh yeah, Tim Carter was MTV and Friends oh, more Jesus. instrumental at exporting Americanization than U.S. foreign policy. Okay, so I've actually you can never expand seen, that, couldn't you? More generally, I've never seen an episode of Friends, and I never will i'll tell you that now for nothing um why why if, why, why the hostility to friends i just look, i just hate the the thought it's of it, what the you are it. it's the syrupy isn't it it's all sentimental kind of it's i don't know kind of no, but wise it's very cracks funny. is it you like the way you yeah. you're a big fan of friends I, oh was, I certainly God. watched Friends when it was on. Yeah, this is this is poor stuff. Okay, so were they more instrumental in exporting Americanization than U.S. foreign policy? Yes, undoubtedly. Talking about them more broadly, so um, as far back as the 1920s, uh, Will Hayes, who was the sort of head of the American motion picture industry, said, "You know, the 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 the, the film, the the cinema, is to us what the gunboat and the flag and the kind of." the manufactory were to Britain. So these are going to carry American values all across the world. And of course they have. And the American governments, and indeed the CIA actually, put a lot of money in the Cold War into backing the arts and into backing American culture because they were well aware that soft power was often much more important than than hard power. That there'd be resistance to hard power, but not to soft. And I think, yeah, MTV, um, the funny thing about MTV, of course, is that MTV at first was... British bands because they had got they'd done videos and American bands were very slow to do it. But Amer- but rock and roll more broadly, and I don't know about American television, about but certainly American film. I think TV they were, you know, American TV when I was growing up was seen as slightly cheap and nasty. Wouldn't you agree that it was kind of you know it's a bit ITV, Dallas, well Dallas, yeah Dallas. I mean it was thing. that was so that was all about the kind of the evils of American capitalism basically. But it made it because that, what that was doing. So that's America's answer to Downton Abbey, isn't it? It's basically selling a stereotype of itself. Yeah, um, it, that people want to. You know, it's basically pandering to the kind of the sort of um, cowboy hats and, and Texas oil men. I mean, that's what we do when we set, make country house dramas. It's just the lowest common denominator version of your own brand. Yes, um, which is kind of an interesting example of Americanization. Perhaps is uh, what's it that one on um, Netflix, Bridgerton. 
Yeah, I've never seen is, that. That's very Americanized no, version I, of a no, and British I'm very, costume I'm very drama. I'm to talk about it because I haven't seen it either, so I don't really want to talk about something I haven't seen. But yes, that does seem to be a very American. It's never stopped you in the version. past. <laughs> no, that's very, right. that's very harsh. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Sorry. let's move straight on from that uh, incredibly unfair aspersion to uh, um, a question from Stephen Clark, good yeah. friend of the show. He uh, is who a good asks, friend of the show. Is the teenager the greatest legacy of the period of Americanization? So teenagers, uh, it's, it's definitely Americanized. It's an American PR man's creation. The idea comes from, I think, the thirties, um, and it's partly because American kids had money and independence earlier than their European equivalents. Basically, because the American economy, if you were doing well, was doing better. So it's all about the market, um, and it's all about the consumer goods open to you. Um, is it the greatest legacy of the period of Americanization? It's an interesting question. I mean, the teenager is definitely an American creation. You know, there have been adolescents, but that had been teenagers. And, yeah, is it the greatest legacy? I mean, it's one what of the great know, ones, isn't it? It's, um, it's, it's, it's so great to see you genuinely thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Happens so rarely. <laughs> 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 A huge historical question, and to see yeah. your mighty brain... <laughs> Well, you know, I'm sifting through so many alternatives. <laughs> and I think, I think that on that note, um, we should, uh, we should come to an end because, um, you can go away and have a ponder on that. Okay. Um, and, uh, we can get ourselves up for our next podcast, which will be, um, coming back to Europe. We're, we're, we're looking at, um, Prussia and the birth of Germany with the writer and historian Katja Hoyer. So That's a very I will good say, one. We've done it already, and it's actually a very oh, good one. Dominic, I, I recommend it to the listeners. Dominic, Dominic, you've totally spoiled the illusion. Now we're in a I kind think, of back to the future. I think people will like that. I think they like the sense of uncertainty. Have they recorded it or haven't they? Yeah, we've already recorded it, guys. Dominic's totally torpedoed that attempt to try and... <laughs> Great Were you trying to introduce a, a, a sense of urgency and jeopardy? <laughs> you kind of introduced European postmodernism there and totally exactly. ruined it. Anyway, on that note, bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.